Um, But I get to read our scripture for us today. So today we're going to be reading from Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. So if you're able to, please stand with us while we read the Lord's word. Starting in verse 11, it says, When they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had been given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your minna has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, the master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your minna has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your minna. I have kept it and laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words. You wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Then why then did you not put money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his minute away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minutes. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. No, you're good. It's just, it's a hard ending. Uh, they're not expecting it to end like that. It's, yeah, because you got to read it. Now I get to explain Jesus saying, yeah, bring him here and slaughter him before me. Uh, on that note, let's pray. Uh, actually, we really actually should. Let me, let me say a quick prayer for us. Uh, God, yeah. Um, <laughs> whew, what a text. Um, so important and so crucial and so much. Uh, we're not going to be able to dive into it, you know, in every little bit of a detail, but God, I pray that of the things that you want us to hear, we would hear. God, there is some uh, hard realities that we find in this text um, that apply to certain groups of people. And Lord, I, I pray that if those groups of people are in here this morning, that they would know who they are, but also that they would know the danger they're in, but also that they would know by the end of this that you don't want that judgment for them, that, that you died for them to rescue them from that. Uh, God, for those people that are in here, though, that are, that are like the faithful servants we read in this passage, oh, would they just feel fresh wind in their cells and encouragement today? And would you teach us how to be better servants of you? In your name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, the last few years, I've heard multiple people use this idea in different contexts, but, but it comes down to this. They've observed that at the end of your life, every second you've lived, every dollar you've spent, every relationship you had, every vacation you ever took, all of it is going to, at the end of your life, be compressed down and fit into a dash between the dates of your birth and your death, and that'll be on your tombstone. Um, I have a picture that is not a tombstone 
tombstone, but it kind of gets at what this will look like. There'll be a date that you were born and a date that you died. And then everything you lived, every moment will be squeezed down into that dash. I didn't put the dates of born and died because I was really afraid that if it was the date you were born, I was like, you're like, oh, like, is that it? Like, is this like, is this my timeline? I didn't want to freak you out. So we just left it generic. But yeah, it's the idea that everything you're ever going to do to experience is going to be compressed down. And when most people make this observation, they're leaning into, and I want us to lean into, of like, okay, then how do we make the most of that dash between the dates? Like, how do I make my life count and make my dash count? Which I think is a great question. But what I've come to believe over time is how you answer that question of how do you make it count and make it matter depends a lot on how you see the world and how you see really all of existence and how you see your existence. And and I've come to believe there's really two primary ways to look at the existence of like the universe and your existence. Two options. We're going to have them on the screen. One option is you can believe that everything, including you, came from nothing randomly. That there was no kind of a creator. There was nothing. It was just a bunch of nothingness. And then all of a sudden, poof, it came. And then eventually you came about. That's one way of looking at the world. And a lot of people look at it that way. And here's what it says. If you look at the world that way, go and create whatever meaning you want, because it's ultimately all meaningless anyways. That sounds harsh, but it's true because if there's really no creator and it all just came about randomly and somehow a lot of stuff came from nothing, which by the way, is just as much a leap of faith as the second thing. Just wanted to say that out loud for us. Man, at the end of the day, make your meaning. If you want to go and make a lot of money, make a lot of money. If you want to go and do a lot of things, go and do a lot of things. If you want to do nothing, go for it. Because you're just a blip on the radar of human history and people are going to forget you. And it's not going to ultimately matter anyways, because you're going to come to nothing. Okay. You feel so encouraged right now, (laughs) but listen, this is if you believe this first thing, this is if you believe this first thing, there's a second way of looking at existence, including yours. And it's this, everything, including you came from nothing intentionally. So instead of it just randomly coming about, you would believe that there is a creator, a God who did create the world out of nothing, but he created it. And if this is you, how you make your dash count is not by doing whatever you think is right, but ultimately you have to come to know that creator, come to know that God. And then you have to really figure out like, why has he put you on the timeline of human history and of existence? You have to figure out who he is, get to know him, but then you have to figure out like, why has he put me here? And then lean into that with your life. So these are the two possibilities if you're going to make your dash count. One is, "Ah, I just came about randomly. In that case, do whatever you want. It's meaningless anyway, so just do whatever you want. The second way to live your dash is to say, there's a God who created everything from nothing and I need to come to know him and to live into whatever he wants me to live. Now, as Christians, we obviously believe it's the second option. If you're here, and we do have people here sometimes who are not yet believers, who you may be in that first camp. A few things for you. If you're here and you're not yet a believer in Jesus or even in God, number one, welcome. Like, no place we'd rather you be. We're not here to attack you or to make fun of you. Um, We are so glad you're here. But number two, as I'd say, is both of these viewpoints require faith. It takes as much faith to believe that something came from nothing, which never happens in creation or nature now. It takes faith to believe that that happened rather than like somebody created. It takes just as much faith. And the final thing is, if you're like, well, why would you believe that second thing? There's a lot of reasons I could give you, but here's the big one. As people who love Jesus and follow Jesus, we believe in something called the resurrection. 
We believe there is a historical person named Jesus who throughout his life said repeatedly, I'm going to be killed. And in the third day, I'm going to rise from the grave. And then he did it. And if someone, generally speaking, predicts their death and then says they're going to rise from the grave and they do it, probably a good idea to trust whatever else they say, okay? And it's probably a reasonable thing to believe that they are God, which he also claimed to be the son of God. So we as Christians believe that Jesus was not just a man, but that he is the God of the universe in human flesh. And if that's the case, if we're going to make our lives count, we need to fit our lives into his story. Now, I'm going to keep going with that thought here for a second, but I'd say if you're here and you're not quite ready to believe that, just hear me out for the next 30 to 35 minutes. And I'd also say this, feel free to come up afterwards to like me or to people on staff and talk with us. And we won't like preach at you. We won't yell at you. We'll just have a dialogue and start a friendship together. Cool. All right. Let me pick up back with our train of thought of where we were going. So it's a good idea then, if we believe Jesus is the son of God, if he is the creator of everyone and everything, to kind of figure out his timeline, because then the way we make our lives count is to put ourselves into his timeline. So let's talk about Jesus's timeline. I got a line here with two arrows on both sides. That's representative of the fact that Jesus in scripture is called the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. That's not communicating that Jesus had a beginning and that he has an end, but that simply he has always been and he always will be. Jesus is the son of God. He is an eternal being. But we believe, as I've already mentioned a few minutes ago, that the son of God at a point in human history, a fixed point, came into this world through his birth. We celebrate it every year at Christmas. In John 1, it says that the word referring to Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. We dwelt among us for about 30 to 33 years, somewhere in between there. And eventually, though, he died on a cross, We'll get into a little bit of why here in a bit, but he died on the cross. On the third day, he was resurrected. And then about 40 days later, he departed. He ascended into heaven. That's the next little dot on the screen. But before he left and throughout his life, he talked about how one day he was going to return. So that's our next stop, that there is a going to be a date in history where he returns. And what the scriptures tell us is that when he does that, sin and evil will be no more. He's going to drive away anything evil and off from this world. He's going to make a new creation and bring in an air of peace and love. And we're going to be able to experience the full presence of God for forever with him. Amen. And it's going to be amazing. But here's what I would say is, in a sense, we have a dash between two dates as well. We'll get to that yellow one in a second here. You can keep it up there for now. We'll get to that in a second. But hey, we got a dash between two dates. We've got Jesus's departure and we've got his return. And we're now in the middle of that. And our lives, our dash, which is what the yellow represents, are in the middle of that as well, which brings me to here. I've kind of been setting this up for this moment. If we're going to make our dash count, The real question we then have to ask then with all this in mind is this, what does Jesus want us to do while we wait for his return? Okay, if there is a God and he created us intentionally, that means he has a purpose for us. And if we're living in Jesus's timeline, we need to ask, well, what does he want us to do while we wait for his return? And in the parable today that we just read from, Jesus is going to give us some options, really three groups of people that represent three options. I'm going to come back to that in a minute though and give you a little bit more context that kind of maybe gets your mind around this parable um, a little more. Uh, At the very beginning, it says, 
that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And that is why he told this parable. The reason for that is that people believed increasingly that Jesus was the Messiah. The Messiah was going to be this kingly figure who was going to come in, um, defeat the, the, the people of God's, uh, I almost said armies. It is going to be their armies. He's going to defeat the people of God's enemies. He's going to throw them out. And then he's going to establish the full and final reign of God and bring in that era of peace and prosperity and the, re- and the end of sin and evil. They're thinking that when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, that's what he's going to do. So like, he's going to bring it right then. He's going to go in, proclaim himself king, beat the Romans into the ground, and then establish it once and for all. And Jesus often throughout his life, when people had wrong expectations, would tell parables or ask questions to challenge those assumptions and those expectations. And this is what he's doing here. He tells this parable of a nobleman who goes away and departs and eventually comes back as a way of saying, hey, it's not going to come when I go to Jerusalem. I'm going to leave and come back. And so Jesus, part of the reason he tells this parable is to adjust their expectations that there's going to be a gap, which we referred to earlier. The second reason he tells this parable is that in this parable, there's a judgment. If you were reading the nobleman who became king comes back and then he evaluates three groups of people in the same way, there's going to be a judgment when Jesus returns. And what we are going to be judged on is what we did with our dash is what we did with the time when we are awaiting for Jesus' return. And he gives us three options, three categories. I'm going to just tell you right now, I didn't tell this to the first group, but I'm going to tell it to you now, the first group meeting the first service. Like, there's a lot here. <laughs> like, the more I studied, I realized in the same way when we broke up the prodigal son into three or four weeks, we probably should have broken this up into several weeks. Uh, because of that, I'm not going to be able to hit every single little detail um, in the passage. You may be like, well, what about this? Here's what I'm being serious what I'm about to say. If you have questions about things that we're not able to hit because we don't have multiple weeks to spend on this, send, on this um, send me an email, paul at redeemernw.org. And I'll seriously interact with you this week. Because even like after the service, I was like, hey, what about that? And I had to answer a question that I originally had in my sermon, but I was cutting it because of time. So just know we're going to be going pretty fast. Uh, Have fun if you're keeping notes because I'm going to talk pretty fast to get through a lot of this stuff. Um, But here's at the end of the day, because we're going to go pretty fast and there's a lot to cover. Let me just go to tell you the biggest things I want you to know or to figure out in this sermon. Okay, kind of the front end. I mentioned three groups and three ways we can spin our dash. I want you by the end of the sermon to know which group you're in. Like, which are you? I want you to know what's awaiting you if you stay in that group. And then I do want to let us know maybe a few practical things that you can do or need to do depending on what group you're in. Cool. So I want you at the the end of this, I want you to know which group you belong to and how you're spending your dash right now. I want you to know what's awaiting you if you continue to do that. And I want you to know what then you practically need to do in light of that. Sound good? All right. That being in mind, I almost tripped over backwards. That a bit embarrassing. Um, with that in mind, let's dive in. I'm going to start with the negatives. I'm going to start with two negative ways, the ways that Jesus would not have you spend your dash. We're not going to go in the perfect order of the parable, but we're going to hit each group. The first way that you can spend your dash is as a foe of Jesus. I'm going to use these drawings to kind of help us throughout our sermon today, kind of get our minds around it. But a foe would look like this. A foe says, okay, Jesus, you got what you're doing. That's nice. And even if they believe in Jesus, a foe says, I'm going to do my own thing. Like my life is mine. I'm not going to submit to Jesus as king. I'm going to be the king or queen of my life. You see this represented in the citizens um, in the parable. In verse 14, 
It says this, but his, the nobleman's who's going to become a king, his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. They wanted to do life on their own and have their own dash. They wanted to be doing life on their own terms. When Jesus tells this story, he's actually drawing on history that his audience would have known really well. Um, in this time, you had the Roman Empire. Rome is um, overseen and ruled by the Caesar. But the way Caesar would practically govern different areas is he would appoint kings to be over different regions of his empire. But in order to become a king, they had to go and receive that kingship from him and have him approve them as king. Well, at this time, earlier actually before this time, um, there is a guy named Archelaus who was the son of a man named Herod the Great. You may have heard of him from the Bible. Herod was a wicked, wicked king, has a son. Well, the people don't want his son to be king. So guess what they do? They send a delegation to Rome while uh, Archelaus is going to receive the kingship and say, we don't want this man to be king. Guess what happens? Archelaus is still made king. And then guess what happens to those people? I won't describe it, but you can fill in the details. It doesn't end well for them. So Jesus is drawing on history that they know, but really to tell them a lesson that they really, really need to know. And I, and I would say it's this. You, you can be a foe of Jesus. And when I say a foe, don't think like you actively have to hate him. Um, I think actually a foe can look like someone who says, man, like, Jesus is, is cool, but I have some intellectual problems with, with Jesus and with Christianity. Like I can't believe in miracles, I can't believe that Jesus is up in heaven or that he's on There's stuff I can't believe. It's more of an intellectual problem. And that's why they ultimately don't submit to him and to his reign. You can have a moral problem with Jesus. What I mean by that is you could say, hey, I believe there's certain things I want to do. And I believe there's certain things people should be able to do. Jesus seems to be against those things. So I'm not going to submit to him because I'm going to do whatever I want. Um, there's religious reasons people um, are Jesus's foes. Like Jesus's biggest foes in his day was religious people. <laughs> It was people who said, we don't want to believe in you. We want to believe our own system of thought and thinking. We don't want to believe in Jesus that he could save us. We're going to do our own thing to save ourselves. There's a lot of ways to be a foe of Jesus. But at the end of the day, they all come down to that verse that said, we don't want him to reign over us. And here's what Jesus is saying. The people who went to Rome took a big gamble when they said, we don't want Archelaus to be king. And it didn't pay off. It ended really badly for them, like real badly. And what Jesus says is, you can take a gamble and have me not be your king. You can be my foe. You can say, you, I'm going to do life on my own terms. It's not going to end well for you. And we see that here in this text. This was where everybody was like, whoa, <laughs> this is kind of crazy. Verse 27, but as for these enemies, these foes of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Ooh. Like, let's just say this. That's, that, that's harsh. I don't mean like Jesus is being bad. I just mean like that is harsh, extreme, like abrupt language. Why does he, why does he say that? Why is he doing that? I think he's getting a couple things. Number one, I just think Jesus often does this. He will use intense language to shock his hearers. Because sometimes they get in such a fog of their own thinking that he wants to shock them and say, you need to wake up and really think about your life. And I think he's telling this to the group he's talking to. And I think he's telling us to this this morning that if you're a foe of Jesus, like he wants to shock us and gets to wake up to what awaits us. Um, number two, I think is this, is that if you reject Jesus as king, which I really think is what it's saying here is like, if you reject Jesus as king, you don't get the kingdom. You don't get to dwell with him forever. And if you don't dwell with him forever, we are eternal beings. We've got to live somewhere forever. Then you will dwell apart from him forever. In scripture, this is a place called hell. It's a place of eternal suffering. 
And Jesus wants to bring the full impact of that on us. Um, I almost, I'm not, we don't have to do it now. Um, oh, you can eh, leave it up on the screen just in case I need to reference it. Um, I did this other drawing, but we just don't have time for it, where I laid out all of like history and just showed what scientists would say, like our life corresponds to. And it's this little yellow dot that you can't even see in the timeline. Like we are truly in the grand scheme of things, blips on the radar of history. But here's the thing is if we are each of us, you, I'm telling you this to you right now, like if you are an eternal being like you're going to live forever somewhere at some point in eternity, your life will make all of history look like a blip on the radar. At one point you would have been there for so long. Like all of history is going to look like a little blip on the radar of your eternal life. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, you can do life with me and you could submit to me and you get to be in that presence of joy and peace and love forever. Or you can decide not to submit to me, to live life on your own terms, and you will dwell apart from me forever in a place of torment. And you're going to wish it was as easy as just simply being slaughtered. Jesus is using the shocking language to say, listen, here is what's coming for you, and you need to know it's not what you want. You can take a gamble and not submit to me, but it's going to end very badly for you. Now, here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to minimize this. Like... Because Jesus, did, he ends the parable with this punch. I don't want to minimize this, but here's what I do want you to know. Like, if you're in here and you think, okay, that's, that's me. Like, and you don't need to think about it. You know, like, hey, I don't believe in Jesus. Or I'm not going to submit to him. I've not given him my life. I'm doing my own thing. If that's you, I want you to know what's awaiting for you. But here's what I also want you to know is this is not what Jesus wants for you. It's not what he wants for you. Like, he's not like giddy and happy about, oh, one day I get to slaughter you. Like, that's not his heart. We see this in this same chapter. Um, Remember what Jesus is doing. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Like, this is literally the last thing that happens before he then has this triumphal entry and goes into Jerusalem. Why was he going to Jerusalem? To slaughter his enemies? No, to be slaughtered by them. And why was he slaughtered by them? He gave up his life and let himself be slaughtered because he was trying to save the very people that were his foes and enemies that were slaughtering him. Remember on the cross what he said, the people who were slaughtering him on the cross, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus' heart is not to slaughter people. His heart was to be slaughtered so they wouldn't have to be slaughtered. You get in this, like, that's his heart for you. And even like in this same chapter, there's this guy named Zacchaeus right before this. Did you catch where it said, as they heard these things? Well, as they heard these things refers back to a conversation that they're having in the house of a guy named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. A tax collectors were crooked, awful people. They were foes. They literally, what they would do is they would overtax their own people to raise money for Rome, which was their foreign oppressor. So they would basically go to you, say, I want more money. They would then give it to the people that were oppressing you and your family and brutalizing them. Crooked, awful, hated people. Well, there's a guy named Zacchaeus, as I already mentioned. He knows Jesus is coming into town and he is intrigued. Even though he has been living as a foe of God, he is intrigued by Jesus. He climbs up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. <laughs> for those of you in the church background, you know, you, I knew it was going to happen. I just prompted it. It's fine. Well, here's the thing. Like, here's what doesn't happen in the song and here's what doesn't happen in the story. Jesus doesn't see Zacchaeus in the tree and say, hey, Zacchaeus, I can't wait to slaughter you. You have a little nervous laughter there, but that doesn't happen. No. What does Jesus do? If you don't know the story, here's what he does. Jesus looks up at Zacchaeus in the tree. Zacchaeus was a really short guy. That's why he had to come over there. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down. Not so that I can slaughter you. He's like, I have to stay at your house today. Like, we got to spend some time together. 
And so they spend time together and, and Jesus goes into the house of a person that is so corrupt. He like, Jesus was drawn to people who were not like him. And isn't it interesting that the people that were nothing like Jesus were also drawn to Jesus? Like, it's crazy. Like, he spends time with them. Zacchaeus stops from being a foe. He gives his life to Jesus, submits, and everything in his life transformed and is changed in a moment. That's the picture of what Jesus wants for you. If you're a foe, it's not to slaughter you. It is to save you. And in that text, Jesus says, I have come to seek and to save the lost. But here's the choice we have. In our dash now, if we will choose to submit to Jesus, to no longer be a foe, but instead of say, I'm going to put my dash in Jesus's dash, then you will be saved. But if you don't, you will face a judgment. And instead of the punishment falling on Jesus, it will fall on you forever. And it's not what he wants for you. So this morning I'm just pleading. We're going to come back to this in a little bit. If you are a foe and you know you are, after we've gone through this, know that this is what's coming for you, but know it's not what Jesus wants for you, and he's given you a way out. Uh, second uh, group of people in this text. So we've got foes, but we also have false servants. So you can be a foe or you can be false. A false servant would look kind of like this. It's like if you just looked real quickly, it looks like they're in the timeline. It looks like they're with Jesus. But, and I couldn't do this, but if you really zoomed in all the way in, there's this little bitty gap and they're not quite there. Um, oftentimes there are people that they come to church or they come to a Bible study or maybe they grew up in it and they would say, yeah, yeah, I'm saved. I'm going to be with Jesus for forever. When he returns, I'm good. But there's just something off. There's something missing. And that's represented here by the false servant in the story. In the story, the nobleman gives one uh, mina, 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 you say tomato, I say tomato, however you want to say it. Um, they give some uh, mina. I'm going to say mina. And that's about three or four months wages to a servant. So you had citizens who reject him, but then you have these servants. He gives a mina to each three to four months of wages and says, put it to work. So if they're servants, they should be able, they should obey and submit to their master. If they're not going to be his foe, they're going to submit to him. He says, put it to work. And what happens is a few people faithfully obey the master, the king. We'll come back to these people in a few minutes. But there's one servant. In fact, the scripture says the other one. Not a good sign if you're that person. It says the other one, another person who claimed to be a servant, goes to the master and says, hey, here's your mina back. And he said, listen, you're a severe man, a hard man, a mean man, and you don't even work for what you have. And so I didn't really want to do what you did. Here's your mind back. I hid it under a handkerchief so it can get stolen. Here's it back. The master is furious. He's furious. Because this guy was supposed to be a servant, but yet he didn't submit to him. And he has this moment where he looks at the, the servant and he says, oh, so you think I'm a hard and severe man. And he's not actually admitting that he was. Like we see in this story, he, the king is so incredibly gracious and rewarding of people. It's insane. But he says, oh, so you think I'm that way. Well, then if you really actually believe that, wouldn't you at least put my money in the bank so it could gain interest? In other words, like the king is looking at the false servant and saying, you're not really a servant of mine. You're a liar. You're a fake. And it ends badly for this person too. You don't see this in this text, but Jesus tells another similar parable in Matthew 25 in the parable of the talents. Um, different setting. Of, it's just like sometimes if preachers preach in different places, they'll preach the same sermon and use the same stories, but tweak them. Jesus did this too. And in that one, the person who did this, the person who was the false servant, here's what Jesus said about that person. They were thrown into outer darkness where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is a way that was described in the New Testament as a place called hell. 
They faced the same fate as the foe. There's a lot of Fs, but I'll say it again. The false meets the same fate as the foe. Looks like they were part of it. Looks like they were serving, but they truly weren't. How, how do you know if you're a false servant? Um, oh, I'm just being honest. I wish we had more time for this one. Like, I like to sometimes get four or five questions. This is one that if you want to fault with an email, do. But here's what I say. If you're in here and you're like, I think this might be me, but I'm not sure. Do not leave here without talking to one of us to set up a time to talk with you. That's just all I'll go ahead and say. But here's what I do like to say uh, to kind of help you figure out if you are a false or foe. I don't have time for four or five questions, but I have time for a couple words. I look at attitude and I look at actions. Attitude. Here's what I mean. Um, throughout my ministry life, I've worked as a student pastor, college pastor, worked with adults, everything in between. Um, and I have met people occasionally, try not to judge, but I've met people occasionally that they grew up in the church, they were in the church then, but when you were around them, they really could care less about Jesus. Never really talked about Jesus, didn't have any sense of a passion or desire for Jesus, could, like, just it never entered their conversation. They were there because parents dragged them there or spouse was there or they just grew up doing it. So it was kind of their tradition, but no sense of an attitude of love or desire to get to know Jesus better. Like it was just non-existent. Other people, it's been their actions. They're people that I've seen throughout time where they would say, yeah, I walked the aisle at a vacation Bible school or at a camp or at a church, gave my life to Jesus so that I wouldn't go to hell so I could live however I wanted. <laughs> and, and here's the thing with these is I'd say this one. If, like, if, that, if, that is, if that's you, if you're more of a false servant, like you're, you're close, you're here, but you really don't have intimacy with Jesus. There, there's something I like to say, catch it. There's a difference between proximity to Jesus and intimacy with Jesus. Difference between proximity to Jesus and actual intimacy with Jesus. Big difference. And it matters a lot. Because if you don't have intimacy with Jesus, even if you grew up around the things of Jesus, if you're in church and a Bible study, awesome. But if you don't have intimacy with Jesus, your fate will be the same as the foe. It will not end well for you. But here's what I want you to know is it's not what Jesus wants for you either. Um, in Revelation, there's um, this group of people called the Laodiceans. And uh, Jesus describes them as lukewarm. They're neither hot nor cold. Their attitude was not really like a passion for Jesus, a desire for Jesus. But it's interesting that what he says to them is this. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if you will open the door, I will come in and eat with you. Kind of like a guy named Zacchaeus, right? And so in other words, Jesus is at the door knocking of people who are false servants. And he's like saying, hey, I've got proximity to you. I'm at the door knocking. Open up the door because I don't want proximity to you. I want intimacy with you. So if you're here and you're maybe a false servant or a person that really is like proximity to Jesus, but you have intimacy with him, Jesus wants to know you. And he loved you and he was also slaughtered for you so that you would not have the faith that's in front of you. Okay. Again, if you're in here and you're like, I don't know if I am, talk to us. If you're like in here, you're like, okay, I think that's me. No, that doesn't have to be you. You can be like our third group. And this is the, really the positive example. It's the, say, it's the one I would say, hey, if you're going to make the most of your dash, this is the group that you need to be in. And those are faithful servants of Jesus. So you have foes of Jesus, you have false servants of Jesus, and then you have faithful servants. 
of Jesus. Let's actually read the text and get our minds around um, this group. Verses uh, 15 through 19, if you got your Bible still open. When he, the king, returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. So there is this other group who they submitted. If we have another picture, this is what I would say it looks like. We kind of think I actually already put it up there. If you can find the picture real fast of the faithful servants at the end. There we go. It's people who said, hey, I'm not going to be a foe and be opposed to Jesus to life my own terms. I'm not going to kind of be close, but not fully go in. It's saying, no, no, I've got my dash and I want it to matter. So I'm going to submit to Jesus and put my dash in his. These were people who were faithful servants. They took the mina that their master, that their king had given them and they put it to work. And then when he came, they, he gave them a reward. There is so much stuff in here to unpack. There's so many takeaways. We're going to go through fast through these. This is that part where I wish I had a whole week just on this group. Bring it go fast. But I want to tell you these because I think it's so important and I hope it's encouraging in here if you're a faithful servant of Jesus. Like right here, all the stuff I'm about to tell you is, is really for your encouragement. It's to say, keep going, keep being a faithful servant. Here's why you should be doing that. Number one, according to this passage and throughout all scripture, followers of Jesus will be judged. We're going to be judged. Um, if you think, oh, this is just in this parable, it's throughout scripture. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, 10 says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of who? Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We are all one day going to stand before Jesus and give account for our dash. And right now you're like, ooh. <laughs> but here's what I want you to know. Like if you're a faithful servant of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've put your dash in his, if you've submitted to him, you don't have to fear this judgment. And there's a reason why. That's our second point. There's a second takeaway from this passage. This judgment is not about punishment. It's about, we'll have it up there on the screen for you in a second. It is about reward. When followers of Jesus stand before Jesus at the day of judgment, when he returns and we stand before him, it's not going to be about condemnation. It's not about our salvation. It's about evaluation with the end of us receiving a reward. Again, just so you don't think I'm just taking this from this text, let's go to 1 Corinthians. So we are in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, before his return, who will bring to the light things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. So this is saying not only were your actions, like you had to account for your actions, your inner motivations as well. And so you're thinking, oh, this is not good. I'm going to get it. Look what it says next. Then each one will receive his shame. His judgment, his discipline, his, oh, you really should have done better than you did. What does it say? He will receive his commendation or his reward for what he's done. When Christians stand before God, we are not going to face condemnation. You know why? Because when Jesus died, when he was slaughtered, condemnation goes away once you put your faith in him. Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we stand before God, it's not going to be about God looking at you saying, look at all the bad things you did. You're awful. You didn't live up to it. It's going to be, man, look at the ways you faithfully served. Here's your reward for doing that. 
Like, let's just make this real and practical for a minute. I, I thought about this. It may take another few minutes, but let's just do this for a few people. I hope my mic does not ring when I go off the stage. Please, Lord. Like, let's just make this real and practical for a second. Like, Jim Woods just went over a month or two ago over to the Ukraine, was doing something similar, using medical expertise, but also living on mission. Like, I fully believe there's going to be a day when you stand before Jesus and he's, he's going to say to you, hey, when you went over there and did that, and also when you lived your whole career and whole life using the gifts that I've given you to serve me, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what he's going to say to you. Yeah, you can clap for that. That's fine. Like, that's what he's going to say to you. And you may say, well, what about all these times I've failed? And he's like, I don't really want to talk about that. I already paid for that. Like Jesus say, I, I was slaughtered so that you wouldn't have to answer for those things. Here's what I, the reward I want to give you. Like he is going to go up to the McClure's and their service. He's going to do that. He's going to go to those of you who are serving in RK, like RK camp. Like, I mean, camp RK, I reverse it. Camp RK, like the people who have been my wife, like slaved yesterday making cardboard camels. I'm telling you, like she did that. And I believe God's going to look at her and Jesus is going to look at her and say, well done for making those camels. You think this is silly, but I'm telling you that we'll get to this in a second all of your life matters. And Jesus is going to look at all the ways you've been faithful and say, well done. Here's your reward. And you might be saying, but what, like, yeah, like I did that thing with my kids. Okay. Like I'm going to go over to like Lance. I got to hang with your daughter a few weeks ago. Like, and the fact that you poured into her that she wants to live her life on mission. One day God's going to look at you and say, well done for raising your daughter in that way that she wants to live on mission. By the way, I was gone last week. Tell her I'll respond to her email this next couple of days. I was in Palm Springs. Um, and like there she's going, her daughter's going overseas because she has a heart to reach an unreached people group. God's going to look at you one day and say, well done. And you're like, well, wait a minute. What about all the times I failed as a parent? I don't want to talk about that. I already paid for it on the cross. You got no condemnation for that. You, you tracking with this? Like, I hope this excites you. Like, we will face judgment, so we need to take it seriously. But the judgment is not about condemnation. That's why I got me afraid. It's about, no, no, the reward God wants to give us for faithful service. So we should be motivated to be as faithful servants as we possibly can be. That being said, I want to give you another point because I think it's important because if we're not careful right now, it'll become very much like, oh, I always got to do better. I always got to do better. It's all about me and all about my work. It's not. There is grace in this passage. Our next point that we'll have on the screen, all of this, it's all by grace, but your grace does lead to grit. Everything's by grace. Think about it. Um, the master giving his servants a mina. Grace didn't have to do that. Did you notice what the servants that were faithful said to him when he returned? Your mina has made 10 more. Your mina has made five more. They didn't put the emphasis on the work. They put the emphasis on the master's mina. So even our faithfulness to serve comes from Jesus. It's by grace. He gave them a reward. Didn't have to. That was grace. He gave them a bigger reward than they deserved. Like awesome that they got uh, ten, like one mina, three to four months wages into 10, which would be 30 to 40 months wages. Awesome. 10 cities as the reward for then overseeing, way bigger. All by grace, but yet grace does lead to grit. One of the things we say at Redeemer all the time is grace and grit are best friends. Grit meaning work, effort, because he did tell the servants, hey, you have to take what I've given you, grace, and use it for my purpose. Grit work. All by grace. So what, what, when, you, when you hear this message, I hope you aren't thinking, I got to do better. I'm not feeling like that's the opposite of what you should be feeling. Everything is from grace, but there is the grit of saying, hey, I want to take what I've been given and use it. And here's what I want you to know. You're going to be rewarded for it. That brings our last point. Last point, And then I'll kind of give us some practical next steps for my faithful servants in here. 
My last point is what we do in life then multiplies into eternity. Uh, loved the movie Gladiator. Growing up, any Gladiator fans? Russell Crowe, yeah. Still occasionally watch the love it. My favorite lines in there until this past week was this line, what we do in life, that was a fail. Um, <laughs> what we do in life echoes in eternity. Love that line. The idea of, hey, like your life matters. Like what you do has an impact, not just now, but for forever. Love that line. Here's the only problem with it that I thought about in light of this passage this past week. An echo is a weaker, fainter version of the original. It's like when I yell, like at a mountain, if it echoes, it's quieter and fainter and gets so on as it goes on. What this passage just said, like if we're faithful in the little stuff, actually it's exponentially greater the reward that we're given. Like what we do in life doesn't echo into eternity. It roars, it multiplies into eternity. Like God is going to richly reward us for our faithful lives of service here. And again, I hope this just motivates you then. Not to be like, oh, I, I gotta go get as much reward as I can. It's about me. No, it's like, it's all about Jesus. You don't have to put it at the timeline. It's all about Jesus and his timeline. I wanna serve him as best I can. You can know, ah, you're gonna get a reward for that. And it's gonna be amazing. You're gonna get to reign with Jesus for eternity. That is the future waiting for you. You've got a future of reward and reigning for eternity. So then like, okay, what do I do then? What's the next steps? Like, how do I actually go about this? Because you're thinking there like, okay, man, this is encouraging. Like, what does this actually look like? I'm going to give you two simple words and then we'll start to wrap up. If you're a faithful servant, I always tell people, think about your posture and think about your purpose. Posture meaning how do you approach life? Uh, A servant is a person who has a master and their approach, if they're a good and faithful servant, is they say, everything I have is the master's. Nothing's my own. And I want to use everything that is his, however he would want. And so when you wake up, the way you do that in your day is the posture is not, hey, I've got to go to my workplace or I've got to take care of my family or I've got to do this for my thing. It's, hey, this is Jesus's family that he has given me. This is the Jesus's workplace that he has given me to be in. How do I serve you, Jesus, with my family, with my workplace, with my leisure time, with my social media accounts? It's just realizing like your posture as you go in today, hey, this day is not about me. It's how do I serve Jesus with it? So a lot of it's just your posture. And let me tell you, this is where like your faith becomes fun. Is when you go into a day just saying, hey, Jesus, I got these different things in my agenda. How can I serve you today? And even like with some things that I often pray, maybe this will give you a starting point. I'll look at my calendar and I'll say, okay, like I've got time with my wife. I've got time with my kids. Great. Jesus, you said in Ephesians 5 to love my spouses. You love the church. Help me to do that even when I'm not feeling it. Hey, with my kids, help me to make the most of the time and disciple them well and love them well. Hey, when I'm at my workplace, you've told me in Colossians that I need to work as unto you. So when I'm at my workplace, help me work hard. You kind of see what I'm doing. That's my posture. But then here's something I like to throw in. Jesus, I got a lot of things to do today. What do you want me to do today? Meaning as I'm going about those things, Jesus, if there's anything not on my agenda, not on my schedule, that's already there. Give me eyes to see the opportunities you're putting in front of me and help me to lean into them and step into them. This is where faith gets fun. <laughs> this is where the good stories happen. All right. I wish I could say more on this. I don't have time. All right posture, but you got to also remember your purpose. So the posture of the servants in the story was, hey, they're the servants. They were going to do as the master told. What did he tell them to do? That's their purpose. He told them to make money. So let's think about the story is before he departs, he gives them an instruction and then they're faithful and they keep the instruction, right? Remembering this is about Jesus. What is the last thing Jesus told us to do before he left? Matthew 28, Acts 1, Matthew 28. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And I'm with you to the end of the age. Acts 1, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. If I were to give you like a simple answer, if you take nothing else, is this. What do we do while we wait for Jesus' return? The last thing he told us. We make disciples. Here at, at a Redeemer, we like to say, ladies, we want everyone everywhere to experience the gospel. So as you're a servant and your posture is, I've got all these different things, Jesus, what do you want me to do? I think then what it is is, hey, as I'm with my kids, how do I help them experience the gospel? As I'm at work, how do I help the people there to experience the gospel? It could be through your words that you're given doors to, like, to actually say stuff. It could be through your example. I could give a million applications of this. The point is, as you're going about your day and your posture is, I want to serve you, then it's how do I use these different things for the purpose? purpose of making disciples and helping people experience the gospel. And if you will do that, by God's grace, you will make the most of your dash and you have an incredible reward in eternity coming for you. That's what's coming for you. It's amazing. Can I say one thing? I'm, I'm, nah, I'm going to say this fast because we're, we're short on time now. We got we to get to get to worship. I know today was going to be a little packed. I told you it was a lot in a little time. I've challenged you as individuals. I just want to, not challenge because I don't think we're doing this badly as a church. I want to encourage us like, I hope that until the day our church doors close, and that's like, well, that's ominous. I just mean like until Jesus, whenever Jesus comes back, I hope we're reaching more Zacchaeuses. Like I mentioned earlier, like a guy that was nothing like Jesus, but like Jesus and whose life was transformed by Jesus. I hope that we as a church have our heartbeat be that not only do we gather on Sundays, but we're out reaching people who look nothing like Jesus. Like I want this room filled with people who when we use words like discipleship or sanctification, they pull out Google Translate trying to figure out what in the world we just said. And like, what do we mean? Like that's who we want to fill up this room. Amen. So then let's be on mission as a church and go reach them. Okay. Three groups, but really it's two. You can be a foe or a false servant of Jesus. For you, it's not going to end well, but Jesus wants it to end well for you. If you're in that group this morning, know that right now Jesus is welcoming you to welcome him into your life and to submit to him. Everything can change for you today. If you are a faithful servant already, I hope you've been encouraged and I hope you can keep persevering by God's grace knowing that he looks at you and he is so pleased with you. And one day you're going to get to hear him say it face to face, eye to eye. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, I, there's so much I feel like I left on the table. There's so much depth in this. That's why we love your word, though. Um, I, I'm so thankful for the fact that we can now be people who read it individually and are able to see things I wasn't able to point out and other stuff. And God, I do just pray that, as I, as I mentioned at the beginning, I pray that people in here would know what group they're in that right now to each person, you would make it abundantly clear. I pray that then they would know what's coming for them. Bad if they're in the wrong groups or good if they're in their good one. And I pray God though, that you would now just stir in hearts for people to take a next step. For my, my people in here, my friends in here that are, are actually foes and false servants, you've got to pray. Would they open up their hearts to you? God, for those that are faithful servants, oh, I pray that they would fill your smile that you're so pleased with them and that you would encourage them and enable them to every day enter in with a posture of a servant and to live for your purpose to make disciples of all people of all nations. It's your name we pray. Amen.